Welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona, as well as a wrestling coach for MMA fighters and wrestlers in the Phoenix and Scottsdale area. With me, as always, Alex Friedman, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, as well as my roommate, best friend, and teammate in college wrestling. So today we are going to start up a new series that is called wrestling with biomechanics. We want to break down different positions, talk about the finishes, like the technical side that we liked to enact when we were in these different positions, the fine tuned details and the biomechanics behind the positions and then how we can train it. And then if you were hit with this week, we're talking about front headlocks, a nasty front headlock, what are potential injuries or what are potential risks that could be there as well as if you had somebody do it to you, how do we treat that? So Alex, front headlocks, what are some of the stuff you like to hit? Um, I don't know. With front headlocks, I, I like, I mean, typically I like snap downs and front headlocks. I think that's the, the easiest way to get into that position. Um, and then once you get a push pull with your opponents, like the push obviously preempts a snap down into a front headlock. But then thinking about finishing from there and, and different techniques, I mean, there's always the go behind finishes. There's arm drag finishes. There's um, just a ton of different ways to attack it. And some things that I always think about are, are keeping the arm short and then always, I don't know, being active, not sitting with it, not trying to, you know, put pressure on, but being active with it, that's going to get you to take down being active with it will transition you to a more advantageous position rather than snap it down and just holding on or sitting there. Why did you just decide to pick all of the most boring finishes that you could possibly do with the front headlock? You don't say gator roll. You don't say because boring finishes work. (sighs) Austin simple is effective. I know gator rolls you can do, but you also get hung up on your back with a gator roll. What's I know the number have, one the rule Iowa in wrestling? Finish. What is the number one rule in wrestling, Alex? Do cool stuff. Is that, is that what you're saying? Shit. Yeah, right. You can hit the Iowa finish, but I mean, that works for Brent Metcalf and exclusively Brent Metcalf. Um, I don't know. You can, so, you can hit a dresser dump. You could bring them up to the feet, go after near side ankle pick, far side ankle pick. We can go into an inside trip, Henry Cejudo style. Like there's all these different cool things and you fucking say spin behind go behind, man. It's simple, simple. <laughs> I mean, you transition off of that into a double. I mean, Jordan bro style, like <laughs> simple is effective, man. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not as flashy as you. I'm not as scrambly as you I have to, I have to rely on this, the tried and true methods of things. <laughs> I like what you were saying about keeping your elbows short though. I feel like when, when I coach and when I, whatever I, whether I'm at Valiant or I, I go to, fight ready or whatever it may be. I jump in coaching. A lot of people are keeping their arms way too long. And if, if we're doing this for MMA, obviously there's a different purpose. We can go after our guillotines. We can do all these different things where the arm being long is an okay thing. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about just wrestling, we want to keep our arms as short as possible, almost like T-Rex arms and trying to decrease the leverage that the component can have on the bottom of the front headlock, whether they're going to do a drag by, whether they're going to do a, uh, uh, plant your hand to the ground, step up, move your way around. Uh, what they're going to do, they can hit you with a, a dude on bottom. I've seen somebody hit up from the bottom, dirty ass inside trip. I don't know how the fuck it happened. Not yeah. sure, but he hit uh-huh. it and it was dope. Well, I mean, in, in, in general, talking about staying mobile in your front headlock, like the shorter your arms are, the more mobility you have. You get long in there and people clamp down on your elbows. Like you can't move. You can't get behind from there. But mm-hmm. I mean, Thinking of a situation where it's good to get long, like you said, when we're transitioning to more of a jujitsu roll or grappling, there's also a knee tap that you can drag into and reach across by to get the knee tap down there. But 
the main, I think, point about the short arms is staying active with it, right? If we're just hanging down there and we're being long, we're going to get stuck. Yeah. And like, I like the knee tap a lot. Actually, I like the knee tap a lot when I'm rolling with our MMA guys, because that opens up, if you hit the knee tap, right, it opens you right into side control the other way. So that's yeah. something that we, we drill with our athletes. When we're, we, if, if you're not going to attack a sub right away, that's a fantastic way to get you into side control or for our grab for our wrestlers into half guards, so we can posture up and start round and pound, beat the fuck out of somebody. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm a, I'm a wrestler tried and true. So anytime I can get the back in, in grappling, I'm, I'm going for it. Right. So you can hit that <laughs> knee tap and then just go straight to your knee on spine and pull over. But that's, um, that's where I'm trying to get like hundred percent of the time, even if it were fresh and going to quote, you want to wear guys down before you get their back or whatever. I can hang out on the back. I'll wear them down from there. <laughs> <laughs> and so one that we don't see a whole bunch of wrestling, but I've started to pick up on a lot more in MMA, a lot more of our jujitsu based like fighters on our team do this is when they do that, that snap down or that, that go behind that mm. you like, cause you're boring. Um, they go for a far side head and arm when they do yeah. that instead, of, instead of going after the ankle or instead of going after the hip, whatever it may, uh, please don't go after the hip. You're going to get rolled through. But if, if you're going after an ankle, what they are doing is they're jumping far side head and arm in order to go right into our transition, our jujitsu transitions, instead of staying and trying to score points and wrestling. So that's something to think about when we get into this situation where do we want to just wrestle here? Are we looking just to control a situation or are we then also trying to get to our finishes? It depends on who you are and really what sports you're doing. But for the most part, if you're an MMA coach or an MMA athlete listening to this, why aren't we trying to jump into our threatening positions instead of just staying in control? Absolutely, man. I think that's that's the, the in and out, the threat and control game that you play. I mean, I think in wrestling and in jujitsu, like the more that you can keep your opponent on their toes and guessing and the more control that you have, then the more threats that are going to open itself up and, and vice versa. So you know, that's exactly what I think. Um, right from there, I think about jumping into a guillotine all the time. I mean, I think that's a, the, one of the most perfect threats that you can go to straight from a front headlock. Hell yeah. And, and if you can dive in, I know another thing that we like to do is use using that front headlock as almost like a, uh, not a pass, uh, like a transitionary point in cage wrestling. Yeah. So if we have a front headlock in cage wrestling, we can keep that act like we're throwing in a guillotine and we're just using that to hip up and over almost like we're doing mm -hmm. a head pinch yeah. uh, and then throw them to the side and we can come up on top on the ground and we get within him in the cage so that we cut off that access point to try to work their way up. So we keep them on the ground as long as possible. Yeah. I mean, that's beautiful. And I guess we, we kind of bypass straight over it, but on top of the snap down into a front headlock, when we're talking about wrestling or rolling and grappling more or less, like what is a more perfect takedown defense, right? If you're, if you're at somebody that's trying to take you down, you know, you hit a, a sprawl into a front headlock and then you can either engage or not engage. You know, if you want to keep it on the standup, you can snap down or sprawl and get right out of that front headlock right away. Or you can use it to push them against the fence and go to a clinch. Like, um, I mean, that's perfectly applicable to take down defense as well. In fact, I would argue that's where most people use utilize their front headlock is from takedown defense. For sure. And then to add another layer into everything, the front headlock is a fantastic position as long as you're able to keep their hands off the ground that we can strike too. Yeah. If we keep that front headlock, we can start throwing our knees. We can roll and throw and go into our elbows, uh, any sort of like close inside, like a dirty boxing or a dirty Muay Thai situation, anything we can do to cut them. This is where a lot of the times front headlocks are what actually precede cuts. 
when we talk about our, our clinch offense is that if we have that front headlock, or we have a, like, we let them roll up into a tie clinch, then we can throw those different strikes or those different threatening blows to give cuts because that front headlock leads them so exposed to the sharp objects of our body. Right. And so, and then I guess transitioning off of, of the strict technique and transition to MMA or, or executing the front headlock, what, what are some like biomotor capabilities that you're looking for? What, what things that we do training wise and um, within your movement are going to help you be able to execute a better front headlock or a better series out of there? Well, do the first one I would think of would be our scapular control. Um, so for me, we need to stabilize the shoulder blade as best we can. Can. And if we can control the scapula or this, that scapulothoracic joints that we've talked about in the past, then that's going to allow us to have a better base to put pressure forward. So to say, if we want to put pressure of our upper body onto our opponents or to keep those short T-Rex arms, because if I'm extremely protracted, I'm already pre- predisposing myself to failure in that situation where I'm going to keep my arm too long. I want to be able to keep that downward translation and, or that retraction. And that's going to set myself up for success when I go for my short arms, which is going to be elbow flexion. Uh, will that be ulnar? No radial deviation. Um, and then trying to focus on controlling in that tight, almost like you're, um, like you're compressing a snowball situ like type position where you're trying to control their head or their shoulders and their armpits. Right. And well, and, and when I think about the front headlock is, is part of it, I think is staying heavy too heavy on your opponent. But I think that that comes from a toe drive through the map, but also like the core stability and the T-spine um, ability to put pressure into your opponent. So I think the the core plays a huge role in that in keeping your chest centered against your opponent, whether you're trying to spin and go behind or whether you're trying to move off of them and go into that. But I think staying heavy, and that's a concept that we talk about all the time when we're grappling or we're, we're wrestling. I think the ability to stay heavy has a lot to do with transferring force from your legs and your ground into your opponent. And the only way that you can do that is through a strong core and, and great transduction of force. Well, dude, it is to further your point, it is so anti-rotation heavy yeah. when you're in that dominating position that if you're, if you're not focusing on that isometric training in the core or just anti-rotation in general, you are losing out. You are not go ever. You are never going to hit your maximal front headlock ability. Right. If you're not also training anti-rotation of your trunk, because you're trying to like, the thing about me is I'm, I'm not the best on the feet. As most people know, if you've seen me wrestle, I'm like, like I said, I'm joking about Alex not being exciting. I am the least exciting because I don't take shots. And if I do take shots, I typically end up underneath somebody. Yeah, you, you win your matches one, nothing and two to one rather than because yeah. I'm, scram- here, I'm yeah. scrambling for five of the seven minutes. Anyways, as I can, I progress. <laughs> I had to get a shot in. You took hard <laughs> shots in the beginning, man. I got to get back at you somehow. Um, but anti-rotation and where, where it really is going to pay its dividends are if you have somebody underneath that's experienced in a boot scoot or they're experienced in like a knee slide, Mm -hmm. because I know when I got stuck underneath somebody, I am going to, I am like a bat out of hell. I'm going to go left to right front to back. I'm going to try to pull you over the top in a duck, but I am going to get to your fucking leg no matter what with five or six knee slides in a row. And one of the best ways that you can stop somebody from underneath you trying to come forward or trying to quote unquote, force you to rotate, to give you, to give them an angle is anti-rotation, being able to cement them underneath you, which like Alex said, a lot of that comes from being able to transmit force from the legs to the upper body. And you got that little thing in the middle, we call the core 
that is going to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Absolutely, man. And I think um, you brought up a good point with the the anti-rotational aspect and like the guy on bottom, like that is a shitty position. They're not going to stop for the life no. of them. You know, nobody wants to sit there underneath and have their back bent and, and just be, you know, sat on for however long in a wrestling match, 45 seconds, or definitely nobody's going to sit there in an MMA match. So it's um it's worth mentioning that that anti-rotation is super important and that you need to move. Yeah. And then, so the next thing that I, I kind of go into with being able to transmit that force. So we talked about scapular abilities and scapular retraction, scapular stability, and we talk about anti-rotation of the core and that's one biomechanical point. The other thing is going to be triple extension. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize, even though it's not a power movement, we think about our triple expensive movements. They're going to be our, our Olympic lifts. They're going to be our push presses. They're going to be a- any sort of movement that is going to get flexion at the ankle, knee, and hip. We don't realize that we also need that isometrically in grappling. We need to be able to maintain that position as best we can. When I say flexion, I meant extension. I just caught myself there. I think you said extension the whole time. I didn't hear flexion. God, I just caught myself. I'm like, I just say triple flexion, but triple extension. Um, But we need that isometrically as best we can, because if we can't maintain that plantar flex position, if we can't, or extension, whatever you may be, but plantar flexion is really the movement. If we can't maintain all of that power that we generated and continue to shoot force through the legs to the core, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like Alex, like we need that middle, we need that bridge, which is our core, but we also need the suspension, which yeah. is going to be our legs and being able to extend all three joints. Yeah. And I mean, how much is utilizing your hips to stay heavy on somebody? Like that's the the main emphasis when you're, you're pushing down and somebody on takedown defense, like when we get into the front headlock, it's more like a, a chest over, you know, shoulder, chest over neck position. But, you know, and when I think about when we think about triple extension is like into a sprawl, like mm-hmm. right when you hit that, you need triple extension just as much as you do when you're doing a power cleaner, just as much as when you keep your legs away from somebody and we slide into a front headlock position out of that. So like triple extension is huge. And then that's also what's going to drive your feet. If you transition to a double, if you transition to a go behind, if you not, if you gator roll, but uh, <laughs> hey, that, hey. That, that's, what's going to drive your feet. When, when you're trying to move through your opponent, you're trying to move them off or you shuck by or, or something like that. So, um, I mean, another huge biomotor capability that, that we know is trainable and that we can attack in the weight room but it doesn't have to stay in the weight room. Yeah. And speaking about the weight room, what are some exercises we could go into if we want to get better at our front headlock? Well, I mean, I think like we were talking about scapular control, I think, you know, bent over rows and rows and any type of general planar motion, um, a movement that I love as far as moving the scapula and moving the body in a different faction. Everybody thinks of like a single arm tripod row or, or bent over rows with the barbell. I love to use the bands and get a rotational component into the rows. So if you have a band anchored to a rack or something in front of you, you get to do the row, but you can also rotate and turn your body with it and pull into that because I mean, as we know, sports movement is rotational and we get in a transverse plane, we can add that component into our rows, no matter what we're doing with a, a torso rotation but also from the T-spine, not again, not from the lower back, but we can add that rotational component to the row and make it a more complete movement. I think Austin is a a big fan of like the seesaw rows where Mm -hmm. we're in a hinged position and we're moving the scapular completely into protraction on one side as we go into retraction on the other side and we're using the total musculature of the shoulder to move through a bigger range of motion than just the packed lat position into a row. I think that's 
partially, I think a lot of people miss out on that. And that's been a debate that I, I've seen previously is like, do we lock the lats in when we row or do we have free flowing full range of motion? And I'm, I'm a much bigger fan of a full range of motion with our lat going all the way from a protracted position to a retracted and depressed. Uh, yeah. Position. And well, and another variation, I know I'm getting fancy right here, oh, but shit. God damn it. I know I love, I personally love my, my row variations from low bear too, whether we yep. can do because low bear is, I mean, low bear is essentially without the knee, the knee extension is essentially what we're looking at in this front headlock, except mm-hmm. we got to triple extend the legs like we were talking about, but it's a good st- stability position to train mm-hmm. the upper body. So we can hold that low bear. We can do, if you want to do a renegade row, or we can do just regular, just a tripod row from low bear from an elevated standpoint, or we can also do an overhead movement, which is simulating keeping my arms short. So I like, a, I like a lot of low bear banded rows Mm-hmm. from the band coming above your head. So I attach it to the squat rack. I step back, let's say 10 steps with a one half inch band. And we're doing a row, like I'm doing like a lat pull down towards my body to yeah. train that ability to keep my arms tight or those T-Rex arms in. Well, I mean, you think about like concurrent contraction or co-contraction. And we think about holding that core position that we went into in depth on in, in as far as biomotor capabilities. And then you combine that with the shoulder retraction control we're talking about. I mean, the low bear into a row. I like rowing through, so pulling under your body. I think that's a great plane of movement to row and pull in as well. So from overhead, from the side, um, I even like, um, like an, an more of an anti-rotational movement where we're in a low bear, the anchor is to this arm that's lifted up and you're just holding the band tension. Yeah. Does that make sense? So yeah, yeah. holding the band at one arm, you're almost in a tripod position, but you have to hold the low bear and not move from there. Um, again, I think that stuff gets really well at it. I think the bare bones are, you know, anti-flexion, anti-rotation uh, of the core, whether we get at that I mean, however you do, but also adding in the the total scapular movement, not just packing the last down and in, but moving in and out of the full range of motion. Yeah, dude. And how, in your mind, how do we get to that triple extension position in the weight room? And how is that going to translate into our front head? If we're just, I know this is a vacuum, but just going after front headlocks. Yeah, I know. Um, so yeah, we're, we're talking ourselves into sports specific training, but, um, at some point you do get specific in your training, but generally, I mean, jumping, like jumping is going to be one of my biggest keys into the triple extension. But again, that's not specific. That's not going to be, you know, uh, in the right plane on even on the right, um, verticality of it. So one way that I, I've done this with a lot of my athletes is, is utilizing the sled, right? When we have the sled, we can get into a really low position with our hands and it almost turns us off into a low bear, right? but we can drive the sled from that position. We can do almost a bilateral push and just send the sled flying down the turf. That's going to be triple extension. Catch yourself on the way down. Um, that's going to be big. We can do our low bear position and have weights attached. Um, and I think that's another way to move and add some locomotion into the, the low bear position. But uh, I think about triple extension via like a sled power push in that mechanism i like the the rotational row i was talking about earlier where the band is anchored in front of you you row with the arm and pull with the shoulder and almost rotate your torso but you can also add a step to that and so with that same arm and rowing with i step back with that same side leg and that adds a triple extension on one side of your body with the hip knee and ankle so that's almost like a transverse triple extension if you will um so there's a lot of ways to pair the upper body pull and shoulder retraction 
with a triple extension on the hips. Um, if we wanted to get super general, I know we said it on this podcast before to not clean for combat sports, but <laughs> the clean is, is another example where we're triple extending with the hips and we're shrugging and, and um, coming back with the shoulder blades. So uh, in a most general sense, I think jumping um, in some of your Olympic based movements, maybe with the sled in a more specific sense, um, utilizing um, the sled and moving with it, with that into the triple extension plus the row. What about trap bar jump shrugs? We did an entire, an entire podcast talking about how cleans are shitty. I know. I know. But, and I mean, I guess I, I lumped that in with jumps. I think I, when I, when I, I, I think I'm jumps, just fucking with you. <laughs> yeah. But you make me all defensive here. That's the best part about fucking with you. You're like, Austin's like, I have this certain thing in my mind, answer it like this. And then I don't. And he's like, you're wrong. No, I'm not. Yeah. There's only one person allowed to have an opinion here. Yeah, sure. The rest of us are, are strapped to be evidence-based and rational. Austin exactly. just does whatever he wants. Um, all right. So moving on from training, what's what's some specific like healthcare factors or, or areas of injury slash prevention that we can uh, attack out of this position if I'm always finding myself in it or it only hurts when I get in a front headlock position? Yeah. So for the most part, when we think about injuries from front headlock, there's two main ones So or two main areas we'll talk about. The first one being the neck. And the second one being the shoulder. So for the most part, I'm going to be talking about the person on bottom in a front headlock, not on top. If you're on top and you're getting hurt, I don't know what the fuck you did, but you messed, <laughs> you messed something up. I mean, the only, <laughs> the only way I can think about it is that maybe low back pain when we're extending, getting but... caught, getting caught on a knee tap and your shoulder got pinned to the ground. Uh, but but it, yeah, for the, the, mo- for the most part, yeah, for the most part, the guy on bottom is going to have something going on. So we'll talk about the neck first. <laughs> With the downward force of the person on top with the front headlock in and them, if they're doing it right, not just letting your head stay on the mat, but actually pulling up, that's going to increase the shear force that's going to go through that lower cervical cervical spine, upper thoracic spine. Um, That could potentially leave you at risk of whether it be a sprain or a strain, or for the most part, that's going to flare up our disc herniations in that area. We know if there's an increased shear force, that is almost always going to flare up pre-existing disc herniations in that area. So we've done a whole anatomical approach to training on the neck, but just as a refresher, um, what I recommend, and in general, this is educational material. I have to say that every time. This is not specific healthcare for you, uh, but if, if I'm dealing with somebody with a disc herniation, I typically am more apt to go to the McKenzie route first and the neurodynamics route as opposed to anything else. So I jump into my chin retractions or any repetitive based movement that is shown to be positive. So it doesn't hurt and potentially increases range of motion. Um, as well as I'm trying to decrease the neuro neuroinflammation in the area. So sliding the nervous system, sliding the nervous tissue and the nerves, opening up the IVFs to let the nerves breathe a little bit, um, and get some de-inflammation or to stabilize the area as best we can. Uh, after we get out of the acute phase, then we just jump into general neck strengthening and trying to focus on isometrically loading the neck in any way we can. I love the iron neck for this. I'm talking about the shoulder, because if you think about your, say you, what's Before up? you move on from the, the neck, um, I do have one healthcare recommendation, um, it's not really healthcare anyway, but don't sit in that position. Don't get that position so long. It's true. That's true. I mean, hand fight, get your way out, um, knee slide, do something you know, offensively to get out of that position. So you're not just sitting there for a long time. Don't rest. 
<laughs> don't sit still in a bad position. That's that's wrestling to a T. Yes. Uh, thanks, thanks, Coach Alex. <laughs> uh, moving you. on to the. Just thought yeah. I'd break up the monotony. <laughs> Moving out of the shoulder. Uh, what are some things that could occur with the shoulder stuff, right? So your arms are outstretched. Typically, if you're on bottom, you have you have a shot. For the most part, you're getting sprawled on. And if you're holding two legs, you're really fucking strong. For the most part, you're probably going to have two arms around one leg trying to grab a single leg, and he's sprawled on top of you, squaring up. Mm-hmm. So your arms are going to be forcefully flexed and, for the most part, internally rotated, leading to... <laughs> uh, potential AC injuries, potential rotator cuff strains, um, and potentially scapular stability issues. So we see a lot. And on top of all of this, it can lead to traction injuries, which is actually probably one of the more common of the things that I said. So you get those quote unquote stingers when you mm-hmm. take a shot, somebody gets a hard sprawl. And that goes back to all the pathways we already talked about. As far as treatment, we can do our neurodynamics approach, go after the nerves as best we can start doing median nerve gliders, ulnar nerve gliders, radial nerve gliders, whatever it may be. Um, but for the most part, we go after a neurocentric approach for a stinger. So if it feels hot, feels electricity, that's going to be an indicator that it's some sort of neurologic issue going into our sprain strains, whatever it may be, uh, AC joints. Well, the AC joints kind of a bitch, <laughs> like the AC joints takes a long time to heal because it's not very vascularized. So as well as bringing in the rotator cuff. So the supraspinatus tendon goes underneath and I'm sorry, this is getting very anatomical, but it, I'll circle back. The supraspinatus tendon goes underneath through that AC joint where there's actually a couple nerves and vasculature that goes through there as well. Um, but because there's not a whole bunch of blood flow in that area, if you do damage the tendinous junction of the supraspinatus, it actually also is going to heal as slow as if it was just an AC sprain. Fun fact. Um, but bringing it back to the AC joint. So the AC, I think you may have been the only person that think that's a fun fact. I think it's cool for the clinicians out there. They'll think it's cool (laughs) because what we do with that and, and bring in everything full circle is that's why we need that passive therapy to try to bring the blood flow into that area. That's why we need to do, whether it be ART, whether it be cupping, whether it be dry needling, I like dry needling because it's honestly cooler. Um, but it's also a little bit more pinpoint. I can, I can try to isolate that supraspinatus tendon, if that's what's damaged, instead of just throwing a fucking cup on and going, oh, we're good now. Mm-hmm. So, and just getting blood flow in a global area. Um, but that's why we need these passive therapies. So not to go off too much of a tangent, but there's, there's all these people that talk about how we like, we don't ever need to put hands on patients. And for the clinicians listening out there, I know that people tend to go down that rabbit hole because they make some strong arguments and, and they're right for the most part. But in this type of situation where it's an AC sprain or where there's not a whole bunch of vascularization, I mean, I, I can't find any reason why not to put a hand on a patient or to put a needle in a patient or put a cup on and try to bring some sort of blood flow to bring some sort of stimulus into the area to accelerate healing and to try to get blood into that area. Blood equals nutrients, nutrients equals a faster healing time. So movement is great. And we always want to move as much as possible in a pain-free range of motion or optimally load the joint. But this specific instance where in an AC sprain is where our passive therapies really shine to bring the blood flow into the area and try to heal it at a faster rate than what the body naturally can do, which for an AC isn't, isn't all that fast. Right. Um, I, I mean, the only thing I have to add to that is, is I have separated my AC joint. Um, I didn't do a wrestling. I was 
uh, playing rugby, but um, like the biggest thing that I did was continuously kind of move it and then progress from, you know, almost ground zero with my strength and conditioning. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't seek out a whole lot of those passive cares because I'm a cheapo and I didn't see, seek out uh, help <laughs> and I definitely should have, but um, the best I did was I used our team's athletic trainer and, and got a loose prognosis and then um, started from ground zero like Austin said, um, strengthening the tissue and getting blood flow back in the area just by movement. Right. And so AC is kind of a bitch. Yeah. So my, my first steps for AC, if, if you want a little deep dive into my, my quote unquote protocol or what's in my brain with an AC issue. First things I start with is active range of motion as much as possible in a pain-free range of motion. So, and there's, for me, there's two different ways to do this. So there's one, I need you to actively move your arm as best as you can. So it's open chain. We can also make it a little bit more closed chain as well, where I plant my hand on the wall right in front of my face, and then I squat down. So actually getting more blood flow by doing squats over and over again, but squat down with my hand on the wall. So that's actually passively putting my arm, I guess, technically it's active and passive at the same time, but in the shoulder, it's passively putting the arm all the way up into flexion or abduction. So I always start with flexion and abduction. Typically we know the last thing to come back in an AC injury is going to be horizontal adduction. So reaching across your body and trying to pick something up, say it's your right shoulder, trying to pick something up across your left side or try to buckle your seatbelt in. Um, So I do all of those different exercises for as long as possible until it starts to deflame, whatever word you want to use, decrease in pain as well as inflammation. Yeah. Then we jump into, oh, what else? I was just going to say, I think one common thing with AC separation is the the kind of uh, anatomical deformity, like the stair step. Oh, yeah. Um, Yep. I mean, as far as being a strength conditioning, I've had a lot of athletes that that have this, uh, I guess, just uh, presentation or whatever. But uh, for me, I haven't seen it. I haven't found any problems or any additional considerations, even if the, this is the case. I mean, it's, it's all predicated on, on pain and active and like pain-free range of motion. If I, if my understanding is right. Yeah. hundred percent. So this is a perfect example of any sort of wear and tear quote unquote in the body doesn't necessarily have an impact on their overall performance or their overall day to day. So like I actually have an athlete right now going through, he had a grade three, he fell snowboarding and he has a grade three separation and we're about two and a half weeks out. And that deformity, unless he gets surgery, isn't going to go away. Right. But also I've read a lot of the research on and just kind of doing a deep dive for this case in particular, because we need to get him back for his fight as fast as possible. I'm like, Hey, is the surgery going to accelerate this at all? And I did a pretty, pretty good deep dive and looking at, looking at the research, it's actually, if you get surgery, it's almost exclusively cosmetic unless it's a grade four, like it's actually going to take longer if you get the surgery to fix the step-off defect, than if you were to just rehab it and leave the step-off defect in the first place. So hey. If you're an athlete, an ugly shoulder is not that bad of a thing. Like, <laughs> you, my, mine's you, sitting right there like that right now. So I'm, I'm going to be exactly right. it hasn't changed exactly. any of my functionality. I mean, so, I'm terrible at overhead movement, but maybe that's just uh, <laughs> that's just me. That that's always that, been a thing. And like, that's due to my shoulder. Uh, trust me, listeners. That's just Alex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. so with with not to go too far in AC because I know it's getting dry. But with with that, then once we get active range of motion all the way through and trying to clear all the planes of movement, then we can jump into our strengthening and we can actually kind of float. Don't think about it as a strict guideline. Think about it as a, a gray area, if you will, 
or a uh, what's the word we always use? A um, continuum. Yeah, a continuum, if you will. Yeah, so just like because those low bear rows and, and pull throughs and stabilization patterns are just the same as rehab, except on uh, a more intense scale. Like that's where it goes. Yeah, dude. One of my favorite quotes is rehab and strength and strength training are the, should be the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just one is in the presence of pain and needs to be regressed. And the other one is trying to impact performance though. They should be the same thing if you're doing them right. right. <laughs> so, and then, so after we clear up all the range of motion, da, 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 then we can start strengthening isometrically. That's where I love, absolutely fucking love our carry sequences. So whether it be a farmer carry, whether it be a, uh, a front rack carry, a front rack carry might put a little bit of stress on the area. So wait until they're, they're pain-free or they pass certain tests. Um, but I like carries because it forces them to isometrically load the shoulder. And if they don't do it right, if they don't load their shoulder, if they don't stabilize the way they should, and you cleared them and you know that they can stabilize, then guess what? It ain't going to feel right because it's going to be opening up. It's going to be pulling down on the AC joint. It's going to be distracting that tissue and they're not going to like it. So if they're doing it right, if they're stabilizing and trying to isometrically load and trying to strengthen that shoulder girdle in general to decrease the pressure on the AC joint, then they're going to love the carry. If they're doing it wrong, if they're doing it from a protracted state, they're doing it from any sort of bad shoulder biomechanics, it ain't going to feel good. And that's a good indicator to, for them to be like, Hey, I'm doing this wrong. So it's an easy buy-in with your patients. Yeah. So, and then I guess from my strength and conditioning lens or, or viewpoint, um, I've always kind of promoted and seen that bottoms up carries with the kettlebells, right? Where the bell is over top and you're holding onto the handle, uh, is one way to increase stabilization, whether you're from a 90 position or you have an athlete that can go straight overhead with it, but then also, um, chaos carries where you have a, a, For sure. um, a, a band or a resistance band and you kind of double it up on the kettlebell and it, it continuously moves and you have to actively hold that position and stabilize rather than uh, a little more passively when you just have the weight. For sure. And then the only thing that I want to caution my fellow health care as well as strength conditioning is recovering from an AC joint with front rack carries. Make sure that they're in good shoulder blade positioning, right? Because we know that the AC joint, part of the, the A and the AC joint is the shoulder blade, right? Mm-hmm. If they're already upwardly translated and then they try to front load, that's going to pinch the tissues because they're putting the, sh- the GH joint or the shoulder joint into flexion while also anteriorly tilting their scapula or your shoulder blade. And that's going to pinch all the tissue in the area. So make sure that they're able to keep that scapular depression or really scapular neutral. It's going to feel like depression to them. And that's going to open up their front rack way better. So front headlocks, um, Dude, I just get, I get, I, bro, I just nerd out about this shit. I, I love it. No, I mean, um, I, I like it. It's, it's one way, it's one rabbit hole. I mean, I think that we have an issue, right? It's like from, for all the way from a front headlock, that's everything that we're seeing along the way from the joint by joint to the core strength to the biomotor capabilities from the injury prevention side of things. Like, I think that's a, that's our unique lens, right? Yeah. And this is honestly, this is what I think about every time I coach too. Like, this is what I'm thinking about. Like, if I see somebody go down immediately, I'm like, what position were they in? It has to, it's not has to, but it's most likely going to be these two or three things. That's the benefit of me being at practice, being able to see what went down. Um, But front headlocks in general, they're one of the most used (laughs) and most scored upon moves in all of wrestling. The fact that we, that we're still in this anomaly on really like how to do them and what, what's considered a, 
okay way to front headlock and there's no right answers, but there's going to be some answers that are right a lot more than others. Right. Like the like, go behind and transition to a double unlike uh, the, the gator roll and inside trip every single time. I'm not a gator roller. I was just saying you just, you chose to pick the two most boring th- first things to say. Well, effective anyway <laughs> anyway back to your point no it's just it's it's a very ex, it's an extremely high benefit or high benefit position to be in it's a high return on investment so if you can really hammer down the details if you can focus on these different things say if you know this is the lack of your game say you're a really good wrestler or you're really good at top game in jujitsu but you're just for whatever reason anytime you get into that front headlock you can't really solidify that these different tips that we talked about isometric loading triple extension all these different things implement them see if it benefits you because i I could almost bet you a large chunk of change that if you focus on what we were talking about in the training aspect your front headlocks will get better without doing any changes to your skill work yeah yeah i mean absolutely and then i mean again just ways to complement your your skill training and your tactical approach and no, I just think that having these types of insights into how your body actually functions to do what you're doing in the sport, I think that um, is hugely fascinating to us. And I think other practitioners as well, but also just seeing that through, if you're the athlete, seeing that lens, it can help provide some more meaningful impacts to your training and, and understanding that it's not just, you know, random strength exercises that we're going through. It's, it's, there's reasons and um, afterthought that goes into those. So that's what I got on front headlock. That's what I got on front headlock. That's a lot on a front headlock. I think that's a lot just talking <laughs> about front headlock. But like I said, we'll be back with this series. We're going to go through a lot of different common wrestling positions, uh, transition them to MMA, uh, look at our biomotor capabilities and, and what we can do from a training sense, but also from a healthcare sense. And um, wrestling with biomechanics will be another kind of staple along with anatomical approaches to training. Heck yeah. If you guys got to reach out to us, all of our Uh, contact information is going to be in the show notes, whether that be our email or our Instagrams, be on the lookout. By the time this gets released, our website will be up. If you're listening and you want to run through any sort of strength and conditioning, hit us up. There's going to be a contact form on the website, as well as if you have any sort of low back troubles in the past, or just want to strengthen up your low back, or maybe decrease a little bit of issues in the area. We have an entire course designed around low back training for the grappling athlete. So until next time, This is Dr. Austin Shane, Alex Rubin, and we are out.